You're listening to Plenary Session. On this bonus episode of Plenary Session, I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Palmer Green, and he is the author of a new paper out on JGIM. It's called Should Evidence Come with an Expiration Date? You won't want to miss this bonus episode. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, I need you to do three things. One, go to patreon.com and back this podcast. Backing an artist you support on patreon.com is a great way to keep something going. Next, go to the iTunes store and don't just give us five stars. Write a review. Tell us what you like about the podcast and what you don't like. A written review goes a long way. Third, recommend Plenary Session to a friend. If you have a friend, a colleague, someone you think is going to like this podcast, give them a recommendation. We can use it on Plenary Session. Now, what can Plenary Session do for you? Well, we can answer your questions. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or send us an email at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like listener comments and questions and we're happy to talk about them on the next episode. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Palmer Green. Oh, soon to be Dr. Palmer Green, because Palmer Green is a fourth-year medical student at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. He did his undergraduate degree at Columbia University, and he's an aspiring neurologist. And he's here to talk about a paper in the Journal of General Internal Medicine. That paper is called, Should Evidence Come with an Expiration Date? It's by Palmer, myself, and Dr. Adam Shifu of the University of Chicago. And it is about medical evidence and whether or not it needs to have an expire-by date. Palmer, thanks so much for joining us here in Plenary Session. Thank you, Dr. Prasad. Uh, It's great to be on the podcast. You've listened to all of these episodes, I'm sure. (laughs) <laughs> I've listened to a handful. Yeah. A handful. I like to say it's like the real plenary session, but our audience is much larger. <laughs> and that probably was initially a lie, but over time it's becoming more and more true. I believe it. Palmer, so you go to the Pritzker School of Medicine. Correct. And you're going to be class of 2019, is that right? That's right. That means I graduated a decade ago, and that means we're a decade apart. Time flies. So what's changed? Uh, probably a lot. You still had to memorize all the isoforms of RNA polymerase for step one, did you not? Of course. Yeah, and I could, I could rattle them off like the back of my hand. Of so. course, because you use them every day, obviously. <laughs> right, yeah, so important. <laughs> and uh, you still um, spent uh, many weeks in lab doing anatomy, maybe 20 weeks? Yes, that's right, right at the very beginning. Hmm. And there's nothing there you've forgotten as well? No, no, I can name every bone, every ligament. Every tendon. All 600 plus of them. Easy peasy. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And, and what about neurology? Neurology is a very interesting field because um, in neurology, you, you all do know very well, uh, I think, neuroanatomy and its, uh, and its correlates with um, different ailments and disease. Is, is that fair to say? That's fair to say. That's one reason I, I fell in love with it, I think. Um, you know, so much of, of uh, neurology is about localizing the lesion. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you have to have both a... Uh, detailed understanding, of course, of the pathophysiology, but mm-hmm. you need to know those pathways down cold. You do. And you need to have one more thing, a very long rubber mallet. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. The, the other appeal. That's how you uh, defend yourself against neurosurgeons. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to have you here. So let's, let's jump into this topic. This is a paper 
The only thing I know about is that it, it's entitled, Should Evidence Come With an Expiration Date? What do you mean by that? What is this expiration date idea? Right. Um, well, uh, so the idea for this paper came about uh, from you know, a conversation with Dr. Adam Sifu, who's uh, the senior author on the paper. And uh, he's been one of our, our uh, illustrious uh, preclinical and clinical professors here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we had this conversation, and this is kind of around the time uh, last fall when a number of uh, large aspirin trials were landing that were uh, essentially showing that aspirin for the primary prevention uh, cardiovascular disease, really the, the benefits no longer seem to outweigh the risks in the way that they used to. I see. You're saying recent trials were negative. Right. And you say no longer seem to because in the past things were different. Right, exactly. So. So interestingly, you know, a long time ago, or not even that long ago, a couple decades ago, we started getting the, you know, landmark uh, aspirin trials, the Physician's Health Study being kind of the, the first among them uh, in the late 80s, uh, with a few more after that, that really showed uh, with robust, well-run, randomized controlled trials that aspirin for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease was effective. It was a proven therapy. I see. So what's going on is, is kind of interesting that these trials are being repeated and it's not working. I'll tell you what's going on. It's just like Pizzagate. The early studies were fraudulent, and now finally the truth is coming out. What do you mm-hmm. think? Do you think- The truth is out there indeed. But, but you're saying that you, you believe that all of these things were true, that ev- those studies were right, and these studies are right as well. I think you know it's about as strong as evidence gets right. uh, in clinical medicine. Uh, this is what we have to go on. And this, you know, as uh, practicing clinicians, or for myself, a soon-to-be practicing clinician, this is what we have to hang our hat on. Right. Okay. Um, and so then you're saying, so you're taking all of the studies at face value, and so then how do you reconcile them in your mind? Right. Uh, so this is where the idea for this uh, evidentiary statute of limitations comes mm. into play. Um, I think as evidence-based medicine is evolving and maturing uh, with time. We, as interpreters of that evidence, uh, need to accept and acknowledge that even our best studies are conducted on a moving target, mm. um, which is the, the population under study, of mm. course. Mm-hmm. Um, we make decisions all the time about whether uh, a study uh, that's you know, coming down the pipeline is applicable to our patients. And you know, we look very closely at the, the patient demographics. You know, was it a single center study, a multi-center study? Where was it conducted? Um, but now it's starting to be more and more important to think about when the study was conducted mm. and what sorts of uh, population risks were present at that time and whether they're still present, what sort of adjunctive therapies were around then and what do we do different nowadays? And is there a reason to doubt the findings that used to be uh, so ironclad? I see. So could you give us some examples? So like what's changed in the cardiovascular landscape between the earliest uh, aspirin studies and the modern aspirin studies? Uh, sure. Well, one thing that, that leaps to mind, of course, is the prevalence of smoking. Mm. Uh, you know, as the trend of smoking continues downward, mm-hmm. uh, you know, over the years and decades, uh, you can imagine a population that's at much lower risk. Mm-hmm. And not only is the, the incidence of smoking uh, declining, you can imagine the intensity of smoking as well. You know, the I people see. who do smoke might smoke less than they, they used to in the past. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that's, that's one more obvious example, but uh, you can think of the ways that lifestyles have changed um, in general as well. You know, whether people are more exercise conscious or maybe they 
you know, their diets are, are different, you know, we, we can remain relatively agnostic in some ways to the exact particulars mechanistically of what might be causing their cardiovascular disease uh, risk factors to change or not. Oh, that's but as long as we acknowledge that this population is, is different than it used to be, I think that uh, gives re enough reason to critically reevaluate the studies uh, that were conducted a long time ago. Oh, that's so well put. Um, I think that, um, so you're talking a little bit about some of the behavioral lifestyle factors. Talk for a second about some of the changing medical management. What's different about these modern patients than, than when the early aspirin trials were conducted? Right. Um, so, so in addition to the population risks changing, the way uh, you know we as doctors treat our patients uh, has changed as well. Uh, one major one being the uh, increased prevalence of lipid lowering uh, therapies, uh, which of course uh, has been shown in also robust trials to um, to decrease uh, uh, risk profiles for for people with uh, the potential to develop cardiovascular disease. So I I, I think you're making a point that, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, as somebody who's spent a lot of time thinking about evidence, this is something I haven't thought about as much before you and Adam, um, you know, started talking to me about this topic. And so I thank you for that. But I think it's a very interesting idea what you're talking about is um, you making the point that our clinical trials are sort of launched, as you put it, on a moving target, which is who are mm -hmm. the people in whom we're testing this interventions uh, in. And one of the points you make in the in this essay is that not only might there be some examples like aspirin where this drug really did have a modest benefit in a vulnerable population with certain comorbidities and certain risk factors, and that benefit has eroded or vanished, perhaps even become a harm in the modern population. Not only might this mm -hmm. ex this kind of happen, but perhaps there's a, there's a flip side to it. There might be some drugs or some interventions that perhaps, um, you know, were tested before their time or were tested a little bit too late. Um, had they been tested earlier, um, you, you all allude to, you know, the use of myocardial perfusion imaging in type 2 diabetes as an example of um, something that, you know, it probably just fell a little bit too late, um, you know, and had it come a little bit sooner, maybe it would have been positive. Um, it's a very provocative idea. Um, you know, as somebody who's going out there in the world and going to practice medicine, um, what's your takeaway from all this? How do you read the literature different? You know, wh yeah, what do you think about as a result of this kind of thinking? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I think you make a great point there. It's that it's incredibly important to acknowledge that the the physiological effect of these medications is not changing. Um, you know, uh, aspirins, antithrombotic, antiplatelet effects have not changed between now mm. and 20 years ago. But right. the the population risks have, and the environments in which the population exists. You know, the healthcare environments and otherwise. Um, and as far as, as what to take away, you know, going uh, into the future as, you know, now an, an interpreter of these studies uh, who will be applying them to my own patients down the road, I think it's, it's increasingly important now to, to very carefully weigh the factors that uh, could change over time, especially at the outset of adopting a new therapy. When new guidelines are being written, you know, I think it's, it's going to be very important for, for us as a profession to, to start thinking in advance of uh, you know, what, what sorts of, of trajectories are at play in, in the, the populations that we're treating. And uh, is there a certain point where maybe an event rate you know, like of, of, of developing a, an, an adverse outcome you know, mm -hmm. or, uh, or developing a disease down the road will drop below a point 
at which the benefits for offering a prophylactic therapy are, are no longer better than the, the, the harm profile mm -hmm. of offering that. And I, I think we need to think about this at the beginning of, of adopting these therapies or else we'll always be behind the ball. We'll mm -hmm. always be realizing you know, 10 years too late that we've actually been harming our patients using uh, out-of-date therapies that, that really haven't been working for the last 10 years, even if they, they did work to begin with. That's, um, that's just such a you know, wise point that, I, th th to be honest with you, I don't even think we, we did talk about it in the paper, but I think it's, super, it's just particularly wise. I mean, it sounds like you know, my kind of simple understanding of this initially was like, maybe evidence should come with a sell-by date or a use-by date like milk does. But what you're <laughs> saying is, we can be smarter than even that. We can say something like, maybe what we should do is specify what are the sorts of things you might look for in a population, and if they shift beyond certain percentages, you would think about reevaluating this. So for instance, this is contingent on the fact that 40% of the people smoke a pack a day. So if it dips below 20%, maybe you'd consider reassessing. Or this is contingent on the fact that an event rate of myocardial infarction with one year time horizon in this population of 65-year-olds is approximately, you know, 4.2%. And if that dips to below 2%, hey, you might want to reevaluate this. So you're thinking of sort of, um, uh, you know, what are some things you could actually kind of put on the packaging and say, you know, have, you know, reassess this perhaps if these things, if these factors change. And I, I guess I really like that idea. I mean, I think that that's something that we don't talk about enough in medicine, um, which is that, you know, not only do we have some of the, like these problems, which is like the big problem, which is that, you know, so much of what we do, there's just no credible evidence and we've learned it through eminence-based medicine. Then the next thing is, well, now we're learning evidence-based medicine and we're still struggling with it, but we realize that it's a way to kind of better assess causality and make decisions that truly are compatible with our patient's desires. And now you're talking about this refinement where we say, well, look, evidence-based medicine is not something that's set in stone. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's a living, breathing thing, and it needs to be reassessed with a certain time point. Right, yeah, exactly. And, and, and I want to offer that with, with the caveat as well that, um, you know, baking, baking into these guidelines uh, or baking into these studies really um, the uh, consideration for, for factors that might change down the road if, if as you said, you, uh, you know, an event rate dips below a certain percentage. Uh, I, the, one, the one thing that I don't want to, to have happen is that we take on too much of an idea that, that we're going to be able to predict these things perfectly. Right. That we, that we know the exact mechanisms in play that could change that might cause our findings to go out the window because we see all the time, you know, we, we, we propose a, a potential study that, that should work, you know, right. based on, on everything we know. And you, you see in a large scale trial that for one reason or another, it, it, it doesn't. And that's the, the, uh, unforgiving empiricism of, of clinical research, unfortunately, but we have to do the best we can. I think in good faith, uh, at the outset of a, of a uh, positive study, uh, to try and anticipate the findings that might change with time and, and what might cause those findings to change, uh, I think is the best we can do um, and will certainly be an improvement uh, from where we are right now. Oh, that's, you know, that's so well put. And um, I, I think you just just really said it so well, because which is that, yeah, we also don't want to be so wedded to the things we put on the package that we don't realize that those are at best guesstimates or heuristics mm -hmm. and, you know, rough kind of rules of thumb. Um, and that those two also validate and require empirical validation. And what did, what was that phrase you used about uh, empiricism? 
the the unforgiving empiricism of clinical research. Oh, the unforgiving empiricism. Gosh, that is such a good phrase because, um, you know, to me, uh, that is kind of one of the central themes that, and we didn't use that word, but that's like a central theme of our work on reversal that Adam and I did, um, which is that that's the, that's the humility of medicine, which is that no matter how clever we are, no matter how well-constructed our models are, is that empiricism is uh, unrelenting, perhaps unforgiving in many times. Um, you know, I got to commend you. You're, you know, an extremely smart student. I knew that, you know, they had raised the standards at Pritzker since I left. Uh, I just didn't know how high they had gone, <laughs> but I knew they had raised. And in fact, it's not just a joke, but we all know they have shrunk the class size. They provide more financial aid and the caliber of students has increased dramatically. And that's good and bad. It's good because, you know, you guys have some generous financial aid. It's bad because I wouldn't have been able to go there anymore. So, you know, this cut, it cuts both ways. Um, but... I don't know about that. But it's, yeah, it's been a, a great experience in my uh, to have my education here and uh, Dr. Prasad, I just want to thank you for having me on the the podcast and giving a give a shout out to Dr. Sifu as well for uh, all the guidance he's provided. Absolutely, and I have to th thank him as well for so much guidance and uh, and so much good advice over so many years. Uh, although he probably uh, might not want to take credit for all of it. Uh, so, uh, Palmer Green, thank you so much uh, for coming on the plenary session. This paper is now out on JGIM. It's called "Should Evidence Come with an Expiration Date?" And you, sir, are the first author. And thank you so much for this really interesting rundown of of evidence-based medicine and some new complexities. Thank you, Dr. Prasad. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>